Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I am your host, Alberto Ligi from London. And please subscribe to the show. Please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we're going to be talking about refugees and pathway to higher education. There are a lot of dynamics at play there that are fascinating and very consequential to a lot of individuals who are not as fortunate as a lot of the listeners here today. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Chris Eaton, who is the Executive Director of World University Service Canada, or WUSC, or WUSC, perhaps. Uh, he joins us from Canada. I'm here in London in the UK. And we're going to talk about their organization. We're going to talk about their work and uh, and a really interesting initiative that they have with uh, with helping refugees uh, access higher education and thrive in that environment. I read a report that they wrote and some work that they're doing in conjunction with UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and UNESCO, the UN Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, which was eye-opening and fascinating. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the show and that you learn quite a bit from it as well. Chris, welcome on board. It's a pleasure to have you on the Do One Better podcast today. Alberto, it's, it's great to be here. Wonderful. Well, maybe we start by finding out a little bit about your organization. What's it all about? Uh, WUSC is an organization that's dedicated towards expanding education, economic, and kind of empowerment leadership opportunities for youth around the world, in Canada and around the world, uh, but with a particular focus on refugees, displaced youth, and young women. Uh, we have our origins in the 1920s in a, a movement of students after the First World War in terms of providing mutual assistance to one another across uh, uh, from North America to Europe. And more formally after the Second World War when we were advocating strongly on displaced youth uh, and access to education. Um, as an organization, we've, we've always focused on and responded to some of the, the, the bigger refugee crises over the 20th century. Um, certainly the exodus of people from Hungary and Czechoslovakia in the 50s and 60s, in Chile in the 1970s, uh, Vietnam and Afghanistan in the late 70s and 80s. And at that time, the government of Canada created a... Uh, an interesting model for what they call private or community sponsorship of refugees. So there's there's kind of a work that governments have to do in terms of fulfilling their global responsibilities by providing support to refugees uh, directly themselves. In Canada, we also have this interesting model where groups of people can come together and sponsor refugees directly themselves. Uh, and the government will provide kind of the legal framework for those refugees to come to Canada and resettle and become Canadian citizens here. My organization at that time, what we uh, designed was an initiative to use our network of post-secondary education institutions, so colleges and universities, uh, to form groups on each of those campuses across the country who would then themselves sponsor uh, refugees, uh, refugee youth, who would, at, at the same time as becoming Canadian citizens, would also get their post-secondary uh, at their degree. And what we have found is that that's an incredibly kind of powerful way for 
engaging Canadians, Canadian youth, Canadian university and college students on global issues, a really tangible way, because these groups actually support refugees who come to their campus themselves, and an incredibly powerful way of supporting the integration and success of young refugees themselves. They come as individuals, but then once they are here, they often um, sponsor uh, their families to come and join them uh, as well. Uh, as they as they become Canadian citizens and continue to work in Canada or or work globally, sometimes they are even able to work uh, back in the the countries from which uh, they had to escape uh, many years before, depending on the circumstances. So that's that's kind of our organization in terms of this area of practice. Fascinating. Is it a big team? Uh, it's about fifteen people in Canada. Uh, and in the places in which we recruit refugees from, it's, you know, we are always working with local organizations. So our operations globally are always in support of and complementary to local organizations where we work. And so the teams of people that we work with there in the places where refugees actually are, uh, they vary in size. And mm -hmm. then in a few of those locations, such as northern Kenya, the large refugee camps in Dadaab and Kakuma, um, where there are, are hundreds of thousands of South Sudanese and South Somalis and people from other parts of, of Africa. We also have a dedicated team working on education uh, in those contexts as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you say the places where you recruit refugees from, what does that mean, recruit refugees? How do, what's the... Yeah, so, so what we do is, you know, universities and colleges have that an annual cycle themselves. Um, so usually beginning in North America in September, school starts. Uh, and so we have a process of advertising opportunities for coming to Canada uh, for this uh, for this purpose to, to resettle, for which you have to be a refugee um, who is uh, recognized by the UNHCR. Uh, can gain access to kind of the Canadian refugee visa system, which we facilitate everyone to do. Um, and you have a, 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 at least a secondary degree. Uh, maybe you have a little bit of advanced standing there. So we help select these people, usually starting in the fall of one year and going into the spring. Uh, and then what we do is we work with those people who have been selected for another year to Uh, help prepare them to come to Canada. They have to get, you know, health checks, they have to uh, get their visas, and they need to do a lot of prep for the universities and colleges to which they will, they will eventually go. And so then we do a, a kind of a close matching of finding the right institution and the right kind of group of students who will then um, uh, be able to support these students, uh, these refugee students for the education that they want. Similarly, as, as kind of a process that we go through, um, we have to reinvest in the local student committees we have on campuses across Canada mm -hmm. because students are coming in and out all the time. And, and our kind of the needs of the refugee students who come to Canada, we have to can continue to kind of update our local committees, our student groups to make sure that they are you know, sensitive and able to support uh, those particular needs. Um, so the places in which we recruit from, places where, where there are large groupings of refugees, uh, places in which we have some uh, contact and, and connection, 
So at the moment, that's uh, the refugee camps in eastern Africa, so Uganda, uh, northern Kenya, Malawi. And then we have a, a strong focus also in the Middle East with uh, Syrian and uh, previously, and to a certain extent, Iraqi uh, refugees who are based in Jordan and, and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. In the past, we've recruited people from you know, Afghanistan, as, as I mentioned, uh, in this program. Uh, we're exploring some opportunities or some needs uh, in Latin America. Uh, and we've done fairly extensive work also at, at different points of time in, in West Africa and mm-hmm. in Myanmar, Burma. So mm-hmm. to, the geography depends, depending on kind of what is happening globally in terms of, uh, of, of refugee crises. No, for example, we're not in, uh, we're not with Rohingya refugees yet uh, in, on the border of Bangladesh and Myanmar. Right. Uh, but that's an area I think that is deserving of, of tremendous attention in terms of need. And how, how do you make people who are in refugee camps, how do you make them aware of your program, your existence, their, uh, the opportunity that you're presenting to them? Because I imagine it's not like a normal university setting where you're wandering through through the corridors and you see postdoctoral you know opportunities or a master's opportunities there isn't uh, a parallel to be drawn there. there there isn't a single corridor or venue where people can go look at a bulletin board and say oh yes i'd like to partake in that uh program of academic study so it depends um in places where refugees are encamped there's actually there is that bulletin board okay um, um, because, you know, the camps are usually quite well organized. Uh, there's primary and secondary schools. There are people who are providing educational services. Those are sometimes somewhat limited. Um, uh, there are organizations responsible for all of that. And so, you know, we advertise through that local network of organizations. Uh, in a place like northern Kenya, where we have been uh, recruiting for 30 years, we're very, very well known. Um, in other places like in Uganda, where refugees are not encamped. And so it is actually, it's a bigger challenge to make sure that uh, kind of the opportunities are more widely known. Um, I have to say, social media is a, is, is a great way for doing a lot of that at the moment. Uh, right. And even in refugee camps and with refugee communities, uh, everyone, everyone has access to some social media. Uh, it's not the only way in which we would advertise, but it's it's uh, one of the important ways. Mm-hmm. And um, with this whole COVID nineteen business, uh, are you are you, is there how is it impacting you? And because obviously there there's so much. So we um, we had a uh, hundred and forty some odd people scheduled to come to Canada for the school year beginning in September. Um, that is now on hold. Um, it's on hold until at least January because of what's happening on campuses in Canada. Campuses in Canada, schools in Canada are uncertain about how much kind of provision will take place in person and virtually. And our local committees, we're not sure how many of them will actually be physically in place because of the, the COVID epidemic or pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big piece. But the, the other way in which it's affecting us is kind of the momentum for growth, because uh, the growth of opportunities for refugee students uh, is is kind of the central focus of our current strategies and work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And 
in terms of country of first asylum, third country, and what are some of the dynamics there? Because obviously the country of first asylum may not have the academic institutions, may not be where you operate. And what are the dynamics on that front? So first countries of asylum are the countries where refugees uh, initially go. Um, and those are countries usually in the global south. So countries that themselves struggle to provide sufficient education opportunities for their own populations, let alone the refugees who, who live there. Um, so countries like Kenya, Uganda, uh, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, Turkey is another uh, country in which you have lots of refugees, or Bangladesh. Uh, so you can imagine that in those contexts, uh, there aren't great opportunities for refugees themselves to access um, post-secondary education in those first countries of asylum. Um, third countries of asylum are countries like Canada, so countries where you go for more permanent resettlement um, and you cease to be a refugee, uh, you instead are on the track to become um, a permanent resident or, or citizen of that country. And of course here the opportunities are significantly more. The challenge of course in both contexts is providing sufficient funding for the number of students who need access to education opportunities. So in a country like Kenya or Uganda, of course, the resources are limited. Uh, and so that creates some challenges. In Canada, we have more resources, but we have to think about how we make sure that those resources and those opportunities are expanded beyond just Canadian citizens to, to refugees themselves. Sure. And the report that I read uh, doubling Our Impact, I think is the name of the report, Doubling Our Impact, uh, Third Country Higher Education Pathways for Refugees, which you did with the UNHCR and UNESCO. Is that, um, what drove that report? Is that as a consequence of the work that you're doing with the UNHCR and UNESCO? Or how did that, that tie up come about with those two organizations? So for us, we've been working on refugee and refugee education with refugees and on refugee education for, for some time. Um, what we noted in our program itself is that the majority of people who were coming to Canada were young men um, and not enough young women. Uh, and that the scale at which we were uh, tackling this issue, even how we were thinking about scale, was relatively limited. And so we wanted to do a couple of things to um, both increase the impact of what we're doing or expand the opportunities of what we were doing um, and expand the scale. So uh, about 10 years ago, we started to work more and more within refugee contexts themselves with local organizations, specifically on girls' education, so that more girls would graduate from secondary school and therefore be eligible for uh, post-secondary education, education and resettlement. Um, and that work has gone actually really well, particularly in northern Kenya, where it's relatively mature, uh, actually with uh, uh, UK funding, uh, the government uh, government's funding for through their Girls Education Challenge Fund. Um, but then additionally, we wanted to tweak our operational model so that uh, we could get more post-secondary education institutions in Canada involved uh, in what we were, were doing. So, you know, over the last six years, we've gone from about 
75 people sponsored uh, each year to come to Canada uh, to 140, 150. And we want to double that again to 300. Um, now, that's still not uh, a huge number of people, um, and it's uh, relatively costly per person, although um, quite reasonable in the context of Canadian post-secondary education. Um, uh, so we've been looking at a couple of additional things uh, that we want to do. We have an interesting model and approach to the financing and the support that is needed for refugees to access re education and resettlement. And the last five years, we've been uh, taking that on the road and working with post-secondary education institutions and networks uh, in a number of European countries, in Brazil, Japan, uh, Malta, Germany, Portugal, uh, Spain, France, the UK, uh, and uh, in the US. And in the US, we were quite advanced in our planning until the last presidential election, although mm. we're we're trying to make some ground up there. But the idea is not for organizations to replicate our model exactly, but um, to adapt and learn from the experience that we have, such that we would have every post-secondary education institution in the North um, supporting one or more uh, refugee students per year uh, on, a, on a sustainable basis. And so a lot of our team is now geared towards that effort of supporting that global work as opposed to just the integration work uh, in Canada. Um, and we're trying to uh, develop the materials that allow us to, to do all of that effectively um, so that, you know, then we have many, many more um, institutions involved in this. That work was kind of kind of that that work started at the same time that the UNHCR was developing a strategy for what they call complementary pathways for durable solutions for refugees. Um, and by complementary pathways, they mean kind of more than just government uh, pathways for, for refugees to, to, to seek some, some resettlement. Um, and for us, we've been working very closely with the UNHCR around education pathways to try and expand education pathways themselves. Uh, for for refugees globally, uh, so mm -hmm. not just in Canada, but uh, but elsewhere, and so we're part of this global effort to share and develop um, uh, kind of capacities elsewhere to do this kind of work. Great, great. I mean, I was the the report was fascinating, uh, eye opener. You know, I consider myself someone who knows quite a bit about these sort of things, but still, there was so much that I was learning from it. And I think just the um, very, very complex little puzzle in terms of, again, the country of first asylum and, you know, limited opportunities for funding and scholarship, uh, you know, the qualifications that might not be recognized in the third country in question, anything from that to, to, you know, the whole admissions process to the actual immigration and even post-arrival and how how individuals who are coming into this um, new setting might be subjected to racism, xenophobia, and so forth. There's just so much that is part of this equation. There is. There's, you know, there's a complex set of issues uh, from where refugees find themselves all the way to the resettlement, education, and, you know, full integration within the society to which they, they ultimately, uh, ultimately resettle. Um, 
And there is a complex kind of ecosystem of organizations that are there that need to kind of coordinate their efforts to support refugees on this journey from the UNHCR, the International Organization of Migration, which provide a lot of the support, uh, the exit visas and the transport and the, the permissions for people to leave the country of first asylum and travel to the country of third asylum. There's all of the work around the preparation for the reception of people to come to Canada or to another country of, uh, of asylum, and then kind of working with communities so that communities themselves are receptive. Um, you know, the, the, the Black Lives Matter global campaigns right now are uh, really pertinent in this context. Um, uh, Canada is a country that similarly struggles with uh, uh, racism and anti-Black racism. Um, and, you know, we, uh, although our, our local student groups and communities are very receptive to um, the refugees who come, it's an issue that we have to address. And, and uh, you know, for example, our, um, our surveying of our students over the past year before the, the protests arose um, indicated that a lot of people who come are subject to some form of discrimination or racism. And so, you know, there's a big piece of work that uh, needs to happen there in almost every society in which uh, refugees find themselves, whether that be a first country of asylum or a third country of asylum. Mm. Um, so just a, a whole really interesting complex of, of issues. On education, though, I would say that for kind of the global response to uh, forced migration and uh, refugees, that, you know, the first things that people think about are, you know, housing, water and sanitation and food and shelter. And it's kind of way down on the list that people start thinking about uh, education. Uh, and then the education funding there that is, is available is not only kind of the last thing that is often thought about, it's also the thing that is not, um, uh, it's not at the scale it needs to be, nor is it kind of framed uh, in, in the long term. What are the education resources and system that we actually need to develop more broadly to support uh, displaced people? Mm -hmm. recognizing that people are going to be displaced for a long time. You know, the average length of displacement, I believe, is around 20 years uh, for, for people now. And in northern Kenya, you have sometimes third generation people who are born within refugee camps whose lives are constricted by the rules governing those uh, those those camps. And so we actually have to think about kind of what what that refugee experience from there all the way to uh, resettlement is like uh, see it from the eyes and perspectives of of the refugees refugee people themselves um, uh, on that journey and mm. design our programs appropriately in that regard. Here's a bit of a technical question, but uh, you mentioned you have this model and other people can learn from it in other jurisdictions. Uh, what are the challenges you face when you're approaching a university or a college and saying, "Look, this is what we're all about." Can we get you on board? Uh, what are the challenges? And also, are you dealing with the university centrally, or is it a faculty that might give you a, an opening and, and you go through that route? So in Canada, um, there is strong leadership at the senior level of the post-secondary education community around uh, both making our institutions international 
and in many respects inclusive. And so there's kind of a receptive group of educational leaders around uh, around uh, refugees uh, and refugees coming to their their institutions. The other thing that institutions are really good at is responding to the needs and demands of students on campus. So we have a, a little bit of a two-track approach in terms of both engaging the leadership of post-secondary education institutions and finding champions within the administration or within the faculty and working with uh, groups of students so that students themselves are involved in advocating for uh, access to education for refugees. And that combination often creates uh, sufficient kind of demand, interest, uh, and, and ongoing support. The mm -hmm. funding model is, is kind of important for, for our growth in Canada, and it needs to be adapted in every context in which, in which we go forward. So in Canada, you have a situation in which students themselves can put forward a referendum to the student body for a small levy. Uh, and that levy may be, you know, one or two dollars per student per semester. But uh, collectively, that's a lot of money. Cumulatively, that's a lot of money. And often enough to support one, two or three students per year on campus, particularly when students themselves take the funds that they have raised through these referendums that then become automatic every year and sustained into the future, when students take the fact that they have those resources and they go to the administration of their, their institution, they say, we're challenging you um, to match these resources. Mm. And in almost all instances, um, that occurs. Um, absolutely all instances. Right. That has to differ from every single institution. The amount of the student body is different. The character of the institution is a little bit different. The size of the student body, the amount that students themselves feel they can support. And so our kind of our model has to be adapted to all of the different institutions in Canada that we work with, which is about 100. Um, and then, of course, the whole model has to be thought about a little bit differently in every context in which we, we actually work. Uh, mm -hmm. Because the financial solutions the that unlock the opportunity for growth will differ from place to place. Right. And um, a lot of the individuals who listen to this show are in philanthropy, they are philanthropists. And one of the things that I found interesting by reading some of the literature you sent over is about scholarships and the nature of, of scholarships, the nature of scholarships and how often they are restricted to specific nationalities, specific religions. Basically, they are, there are restrictions there that may provide uh, or present certain hurdles. And so from your point of view, scholarships should be as inclusive and expansive as possible. Absolutely. Um, they have to be. Um, and so that's kind of a, a critical piece for kind of equity, diversity, reaching those both uh, most in most need and with uh, the greatest potential to take advantage of, of these kinds of opportunities. When we speak with philanthropists also about supporting our program, you know, we're, we're interested in scale and sustainability. So when we look for support, and we, we do, we don't look for support to provide a limited number of scholarships through our, our work. What we ask support for, and we've been 
quite successful in this regard, is to help us to set up the infrastructure on post-secondary institutions that allows this to happen in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're working with this uh, great private foundation in the United States right now um, around kind of the sustainable growth of our program. Um, mm -hmm. And that means in some cases, absolutely accelerating things that will happen on campus through a challenge fund and through supporting some of the work that we need to do to engage post-secondary education institutions and student bodies to create the infrastructure on campus to do all of this. Uh, but that's different than, you know, asking a philanthropist for, uh, you know, can you fund 10 scholarships, which is fine. Yeah. Great. It's wonderful. But what we want to do is take those resources and magnify those 10 scholarships into, you know, uh, 100 scholarships, um, you know, over 10 years or, uh, you know, 20 scholarships per year in perpetuity, depending upon um, the opportunity that we see. Are you able to disclose who that that foundation is who's supporting you? Yes, I, I, I think, and in fact, I think you should, you should, you should talk to this foundation. It's the Shapiro Foundation. It's Ed okay. And Ed Shapiro is, I think, a, a really a compelling uh, philanthropist um, because he's really interested in expanding opportunities for refugees, and he recognizes at the moment that there are some challenges to that agenda in the United States. And so he has engaged very constructively with a number of charities in Canada around how to both expand what is going on in Canada, but also to think about how Canada can share its expertise to help other countries expand opportunities as well. Um, so what's, really, your, what's your what's your website address before I forget? It's WUSC dot CA. Okay, perfect. And um, as far as the next 10 years, which dovetails nicely with the uh, Sustainable Development Goals 2030, what does success look like to you? What is it that you'd love to see happen within the next decade? So what we would like is to see every post-secondary education institution in Europe, North America, and in many other countries sponsoring at least one person per year. Uh, on a sustainable basis, one refugee per year. And that would mean that there would be thousands and thousands of additional opportunities available for refugees to gain access to education and resettlement. Um, and on those institutions in which there is some sponsorship already occurring or some support already occurring, to grow, to grow that, to double it, to triple it, um, that's part of our growth strategy in Canada, and we think that that's a credible way for moving that forward in other places as well. Excellent. If somebody's listening to this show right now and they are involved in higher education, um, is it a question? And, and they take you up on that offer and they say, "Yeah, we're not doing any of that, but we we should." Where do they? Where should they reach out to? Should should they reach out to you? Should they look at the UNHCR? What's a sensible first point of contact or, or literature to, to read on? Um, I think uh, first and foremost, our website. Um, contacting me directly is also a, a really good starting point as well. Um, I can then link institutions to my team. Um, the UNHCR is also a good uh, resource for this, although the expertise around um, 
uh, education pathways for refugees is is not really centered within the UNHCR itself, um, mm-hmm. but with the UHC, UNHCR's partners, uh, such as my organization uh, and the work that we're doing. So we work very closely with the UNHCR and the UNHCR kind of acknowledges and, and enables and supports um, uh, the organizations that have expertise in this sphere. I understand. And uh, a key takeaway, what is it that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? To think about the challenges that you are trying to address uh, at the scale commensurate with the challenge itself. And that has been a key piece for us to think about the growth of our programming which encompasses a number of different elements that I I haven't mentioned today that are also there to try and expand the impact that we will have uh, on uh, on refugee lives. Um, Because, you know, I think we have a great program, but at 150 people per year right now, it's a powerful symbol of what could be done but to really realize something tangible for a larger number of people, it needs to grow. Yeah. We could have a, a much longer podcast than, than our 30 minutes here. We could. Uh, we could. And I think we're going to have to have you back on the show at some point. Chris, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Uh, for our listeners, it's uh, Chris Eaton, Executive Director of World University Service Canada. And uh, please subscribe to the show. Please share widely with others. It makes a very big difference. It helps us increase our visibility, increase our reach, and hopefully inspire people around the world to, uh, to do a little bit better. So thank you very much. Chris, really wonderful. Thank you for your time and, uh, and for joining us all the way from Canada. Thank you, Alberto. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>